This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. My name's Renata Caldor, and um, I'm very honoured to be chairing this uh, second panel, which is on displacement and diplomacy in the Asia-Pacific. And we've got three wonderful speakers. I think we'll, um, I'll, I'll introduce each of them and then um, sit down and we'll take some questions at the end. Travis, Travis, Travis McLeod is going to talk about um, second track diplomacy on displacement in the region, the Asian dialogue on first forced migration. That's the presentation title. And Trevor has been the chief executive officer of the Centre for Policy Development since 2014. Uh, Mr. McLeod began his career in public law, working for the State Solicitor's Office in Western Australia and for Justice Michael Kirby in the High Court of Australia. He holds a Doctor of Philosophy and a Master of Philosophy Distinction in International Relations from the University of Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar and he was a lecturer in politics and international relations. Um, Travers' first book, Rule of Law in War was published by the Oxford University Press in 2015 and he remains an uh, an associate of the Oxford Martin School and holds an adjunct position at the University of Melbourne and the University of Western Sydney, Western Australia, I'm sorry. (laughs) Travers, please come to the podium. Uh, thank you, Dr. Caldor, and congratulations on your honorary doctorate. Uh, and thank you, everyone. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of excitement about this session uh, being the session straight after lunch, so I hope you've all had a coffee and, uh, and are good to go. Um, we're not running as far um, ahead of schedule as the clock on that uh, wall um, suggests, but I've been told to be um, pretty succinct so that we can keep um, as much time for, for questions, which I think would be terrific. Um, First of all, happy birthday to the Caldor Centre and congratulations to, uh, to Jane, to Guy, um, Francis, Kelly, Claire, Madeline, um, everyone who's, who's worked on a brilliant first uh, five years. Uh, I'm here to talk, as uh, Renata said, about um, the Asia Dialogue on Forced Migration, which is a second track uh, process in the region that, that my institute, the Centre for Policy Development, uh, co-convenes with three other policy institutes in the region. Uh, one from Thailand, one from Malaysia, and one from Indonesia. Uh, the two photos you have up here, uh, the photos of the, of the first meeting, uh, which was held in Melbourne in August uh, 2015. Um, Thomas was there. Uh, and the, the most recent meeting, which was held in Bangkok uh, from Sunday to Tuesday of this week. Uh, I've clearly aged a bit, um, probably due to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, but probably also because... Um, the challenges of, of forced migration in the region are, are, getting, are getting larger. Um, by forced migration, I should say, um, we, we mean all those migratory movements that are to some extent involuntary, so not just the movement of refugees and asylum seekers, but trafficked persons, stateless persons, um, etc. The first thing I'd like to say about the, the ADFM is that um, it owes its origins to work that the Caldor Centre was, was part of Um, back in 2014. Uh, There was a a roundtable we jointly convened with Australia 21 in July 
2014 that had all the major parties represented in a number of, of organisations that are here in, in the room. Um, and that led to a report uh, that, um, that Jane and Claire were co-authors of called Beyond the Boats, uh, Building an Asylum and Refugee Framework for the Long Term. Um, that was released November 2014 and one of the recommendations of that report was for there to be a second track process on forced migration in the region. For those that aren't familiar with the Centre for Policy Development, uh, we've been around 11 years. We work on long-term policy challenges facing Australia and the region, but three of our fellows and our founding chair, John Menadou, were um, secretary, deputy secretary or first assistant secretary of the Department of Immigration um, all the time from, from, covered the period from Whitlam through to Gillard. And they were insistent that one of the big um, worries for um, displacement challenges in the region was the information and trust deficits that persist between senior officials, policymakers, um, non-government organisations. So that's the gap that we're attempting to fill. And it's a gap that became even more pronounced or more obvious uh, during the Andaman Sea crisis of May 2015. So since then, um, the ADFM has met uh, seven times um, across the region. It involves around uh, 35 participants, um, senior officials from around eight or nine uh, countries, um, IOM, UNHCR, um, and a number of, of sort of decision influences, I suppose, from the service delivery and policy community. We're now a, a recognised uh, independent uh, track two process um, and have been sort of acknowledged for our independent uh, policy advice by the Bali process, by ASEAN uh, and key countries in the region. We have an ongoing uh, commitment uh, from senior officials, um, governments, um, to be part of uh, this second track process for, a, for an indefinite period of time, resource um, depending, of course, and around an 80% retention rate uh, between meetings. We, our, our studies on the, on the sort of the merits of second track processes um, before we started it showed that one of the most important things was continuity uh, in membership and that personal commitment of those involved to be involved for the long term, not just for one, a one-off meeting that attempted to produce a communique. There had to be some rigorous discussions between meetings and policy development um, and influencing work that was part of it. Uh, the ADFM has, has been um, you know, part of or has encouraged some important developments, humble developments, but important developments uh, in the region since it was established. Um, and some of those are, are listed. Uh, but the 2016 Bali Declaration, um, the review of the Adaman Sea crisis, which we recommended and then helped to conduct, um, the creation of a new emergency consultation mechanism amongst senior officials of the Bali process, um, an operational task force, which flows from that mechanism, which is meant to sort of tabletop scenarios of sudden displacement uh, for the region. Um, and more recently, uh, the response to the Rohingya uh, refugee crisis, which I'll say a little bit more about uh, in a moment. Before I do that, I should say a little bit about track two processes. Uh, I know John Quinn's in the room, uh, former Australian ambassador to Geneva. He'll be more familiar with these processes than probably any of us, um, so I should probably be giving this introduction. But essentially, track one processes are those that are official government meetings, ministers, um, senior officials acting in an official capacity, representing their governments. Um, and those of you that have been party to those, um, we were at the, the Bali Ministerial in August, um, they can be fairly boring and predictable affairs, that it's you know, simply um, officials or ministers reading talking points that have been prepared earlier. 
track two processes are often non-government organisations that are um, put together in a group to work on challenges and to, to present those ideas um, to governments to track one processes at the right point in time. Ours is, is probably a track one and a half process in that it involves government and non-government officials, but they all participate in a personal capacity. They're all there um, wearing a personal hat, not a government hat. Um, all the conversations at Chatham House and that spirit of openness and trust um, and resolve to build a more dignified, durable and effective approach across the region to forced migration in all of its forms was the condition precedent for them taking part um, in the ADFM discussions. The dialogue um, in its first phase was only possible because of independent funding from the Planet Wheeler Foundation, the Sydney Meyer Fund, the Vincent Fairfax Family Foundation and support from Qantas, Cause James Westgarth and the three policy institutes that we collaborate with. And we surveyed the participants at the end of the, the first six meetings. Um, and you'll see there the five factors that were most significant to the progress that the ADFM had made in advancing some of its recommendations through official government and institutional channels. Um, it was the participation of those senior officials that could elevate those proposals often immediately into track one channels, the openness and spirit of candour, um, but also respect for confidentiality, um, the consultative approach that the Secretariat took to preparing the agenda and the papers um, very rigorously between and during meetings, the balance of perspectives, you know, one condition we put on it from the outset was that you know there shouldn't be too many Australians in the room and too many Australian voices in the room um, but equal numbers of participants from especially Indonesia, Malaysia, um, Australia and now the other countries that participate are, are Bangladesh, the Philippines, uh, Thailand, New Zealand, most recent meeting um, Canada were there um, as well and on some occasions uh, Myanmar. The spirit as I said of the ADFM is one of of openness and trust and the realisation that building more effective and dignified, durable regional approaches to these very difficult issues will take time. Um, two previous participants in the ADFM I'd like to, to mention um, are Surin Pitsawan and Michael Gordon, uh, both of whom are no longer with us. And the reason why I mention them is the meeting earlier this week, which was in Bangkok, was the second ADFM meeting we've had in Bangkok. The first was in January 2016 and both Michael and Dr Surin participated uh, in that meeting. Um, Michael wrote about it afterwards and it's weeks like this week that you wish that Michael was still around um, writing about these issues, being a conscience on some of these issues for us. But you can see from the quote on the slide that um, this is very much a long-term endeavour. Um, Often the progress has been incremental. In some cases, it's been much faster, such as the consultation mechanism and the review of the Andaman Sea crisis. Um, but um, no one that is part of the dialogue thinks that there's a silver bullet uh, or there's something that will magically change um, the conditions on the ground um, overnight. Um, we looked at some of the other Track 2 processes, as I said. One of the, them was the US-Iran Track 2 process. And there's a very good study of that done by the Rockefeller Foundation. And it, it found that it was 10 years it took for that second track dialogue to, to produce the dividends um, that it did, notwithstanding what the, the Trump administration has since um, done with, um, with that agreement. 
I'll say a little bit in a moment about um, the work that we've been doing in respect of the Rohingya refugee crisis. But before I do, I just thought I'd, I'd just take you into some of the, the, the machinations of the work that the ADFM has done and then fed up into official channels. So um, during the Andaman Sea crisis, it was apparent to senior officials that there was no pre-existing authority for senior officials to consult and convene in emergency situations when there was a crisis. They needed ministerial sign-off. Um, we proposed, um, as part of that, before the, the ministerial meeting in 2016 of the Bali process, that there be a review of that crisis. And out of that review was generated this emergency consultation mechanism that allowed senior officials to consult and convene um, as soon as they could after a particular crisis. We also recommended this operational task force on planning and preparedness which has been created. We were in the process of preparing the toolkit for this emergency response mechanism uh, when the latest um, crisis um, started on the 25th of August last year. Um, and it just so happened that the fifth ADFM meeting was in Manila a few weeks after um, the latest outbreak. And at that point, I think 450,000 Rohingya had already moved across the border, fled across the border to Cox's Bazaar. So we strongly encouraged um, senior officials that were at that meeting, and it was the first opportunity they'd had to meet and discuss it, to activate this consultation mechanism, which they later did um, following the UN General Assembly Week in, in New York. Um, and there was an emergency consultation mechanism meeting uh, in October uh, in Jakarta, and then a subsequent one in, in Kuala Lumpur. Um, that's led to a number of good officers' visits that the Bali Process co-chairs have, have, have conducted both to Myanmar and Bangladesh. And one thing that was suggested that the ADFM do um, was an assessment of the risks of trafficking, um, smuggling and related exploitation um, in Cox's Bazaar. Those of you that are following the situation on the ground will know that there's a lot of um, anecdotal data about um, exploitation and trafficking from the various agencies and the suggestion was that the ADFM have a research team that try to aggregate and synthesise that data and present it to governments and to, to regional institutions. Um, so as part of that, we presented you know, our, um, the views of the ADFM to senior officials at the, the Bali process meetings um, in, in June in Sydney and then in August at the ministerial conference. And we conducted the risk assessment over those months. Um, so there was a team of eight researchers um, a lot of um, desktop research on historical trends beforehand. Uh, and these were researchers from um, Thailand, Bangladesh, and from, from our team in Australia. Um, we then went to Bangladesh for 10 days um, from um, the end of September um, through the first um, couple of weeks almost of October and met with a number of um, government officials, local authorities, members of the Protection Working Group, and a number of focus group discussions um, in the camps themselves. Um, in Cox's Bazaar, so all up around 180 interviews across the research team. And we presented those preliminary findings um, to the ADFM um, earlier this week in Bangkok. A number of recommendations both for the Protection Working Group on the ground, um, at the Dakar level and at the regional level for relevant regional institutions like ASEAN and the Bali process. The purpose of the assessment, as I said, was to synthesise the data and to fill some of those gaps. But it was also, in our view, um, important to look at the risk of a crisis within a crisis. Now, there are 1.3 million people at risk in Cox's Bazaar. Um, and as was said in the previous sessions, um, the protected nature 
a previous crisis like this means that there's uh, real and foreseeable risks for the populations within the camp as well as those that are still in Rakhine State. Um, one important um, recommendation following the ASEAN summit a fortnight ago was that the AHA Centre will conduct its own needs assessment in Rakhine State. Um, I can't say too much more about the recommendations of the trafficking assessment at this point because they're still preliminary and the conversations this week were with Chatham House, but the report will be released um, in the coming weeks and be available um, to all of those uh, that are interested. I should say it received sort of strong encouragement and support from um, the Regional Support Office of the Bali Process, IOM, UNHCR on the ground, um, and a number of people that were part of the discussions both beforehand uh, and during the trip. I should say just a little bit before I finish about the recommendations that emerged from our meeting in Bangkok this week. Um, important recommendations, first and foremost, about um, the trafficking assessment findings and what it means for the protection working group on the ground, what it means at Dakar level, uh, what it means for Myanmar and for institutions like the Bali Process and ASEAN. Uh, we're hoping to present the findings to ASEAN as well and offer to make, um, offer assistance to the AHA Centre um, as it prepares and conducts its needs assessment. Um, there are also important recommendations about the task force on planning and preparedness that the Bali Process now has and the importance of modelling scenarios that might emerge over the next two years to prevent that crisis within a crisis and make sure that the right level of support is being received um, at um, Cox's Bazaar level. We think, and the Global Compacts provide a, a huge opportunity for this, that there are overlapping objectives between the Global Compact on Migration and the Global Compact on Refugees that provide a springboard for greater collaboration between ASEAN and the Bali process on these issues. And that's why we were very disappointed um, on Tuesday night, only a few hours after the ADFM meeting finished, to hear that the Prime Minister had decided um, not to endorse or sign the Global Compact on Migration. Uh, we think it's a huge missed opportunity, uh, not least because it's precisely those compacts that reflect um, a lot of the things that Australia already does. But as a few of us were discussing last night, it's very much the entry ticket around a set of shared aspirations, principles and objectives that are going to be so important for how our region deals with displaced populations over the long term. I'll leave it there and look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. That was a very, very good presentation. Um, the next person will be speaking to us is Tamara Damasil. <laughs> Sorry, Tamara. <laughs> Um, and she'll be speaking to us on uh, refugee diplomacy in turbulent times, uh, perspectives on the role of civil society in the Asia-Pacific region. Tamara is the Regional Refugee Protection Advocate Lead with the Act of Peace, and she's the focal point on the Global Compact on Refugees in the Asia-Pacific Rights Network. Um, she's been the director of the Asylum Seeker Centre in New South Wales, a national policy director of the Refugee Council of Australia, a refugee advocacy coordinator with Oxfam, a senior policy officer with the Human Rights Commission, and I could go on and on, but <laughs> I think I will leave it at that if you don't mind. Um, Tamara holds a Master's of International Social Development from the University of New South Wales, former Centre for Refugee Research. Please, Tamara, come on board. 
Well, thank you very much, Renata, and um, all Calder Centre friends. And yeah, to echo other people, congratulations on a phenomenal first half decade. <laughs> um, I'm delighted to um, have the opportunity to share perspectives on some of the um, questions um, put forward by this conference um, for consideration at such a pivotal and turbulent time. Um, in particular, I'm delighted to be sharing the stage with such eminent co-presenters um, and all day, of course. Um, I've considered in particular three questions from the conference proceeds. Um, one, can international dialogue promote better cooperation and accountability for protecting the world's displaced? My answer in brief is a qualified yes. Uh, two, what are the prospects for protecting displaced people in the Asia-Pacific region? I think notable, evolving and actionable. Uh, and three, what role does and can Australia play in this endeavour? And I think the Australian government is regarded at best as a naysayer. Uh, nope, 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 and regional deterrence framework of phrases that spring to mind. So for now in state-led refugee diplomacy, the Australian government is very poorly positioned. But for the rest of us, in Australia, we can still do a great deal um, in both our domestic and regional engagement. I'll return to those briefly in closing. Um, I've been invited to reflect on the role of civil society in the Asia-Pacific, particularly with respect to our engagement in regional discussions relevant to refugee protection. But first I wanted to do a quick contextualisation in terms of the immediate turbulence in refugee diplomacy, which other speakers have already touched on. Um, but in presenting his annual report, an Annex Global Compact on Refugees, to the third committee of the UN General Assembly a few weeks ago, I just wanted to quote um, Filippo Grandi, who referred with what he described as a growing sense of urgency to a deeply divided world in which the language of politics has become ruthless, giving license to xenophobia and people uprooted from their homes by brutality and war are branded threats with chilling consequences. Refugees turned back at borders, imprisoned indefinitely, left to perish at sea. Entire groups of people pushed to the margins of society. He issued a call to shake off the politics, and in urging support for the Global Compact on Refugees, he described it as charting a course towards a better, fairer, more equitable response to refugee crises, shielded from the vagaries of politics, adapted to our changing world. And I found that I've been pondering his words since then. Could the GCR become a shield from the vagaries of politics? Or is it just fanciful to imagine that the avowed humanitarian, non-political nature of refugee protection might actually be realised? What would it take? Can the concept of a whole-of-society approach to refugee protection and international migration governance help? The phrase whole-of-society approach is a global compact on safe, orderly and regular migration definition, but the concept is also integral to the GCR, where it's phrased as a multi-stakeholder partnership approach. And it's a conceptual underpinning of the foundational New York Declaration, which has given rise to both. I prefer the phrase whole of society approach because it's inherently fully inclusive. Refugees, migrants, hosts of all genders and all ages and everyone else. If societies as a whole explicitly own these realms, might we work together to lessen their politicisation? But for now, politics is rife. Since Filippo Grandi's address to the Third Committee, a vote has been called there on the omnibus resolution for the first time ever. It was nonetheless decisively adopted. And as we've been hearing, there's been a spate of withdrawals from the GCM, including by Australia, no others from our region 
accompanied, as we've been hearing, by overt misrepresentations of the text, including the deriding of non-binding commitments and aspects of in existing international law as somehow being incursions upon sovereignty. And in situations in our region, some notable turbulence in refugee diplomacy also, with, and again, more mentions, but acute risks of refoulement faced by Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and elsewhere, and spates of coordinated attacks upon Hazara in Afghanistan, amidst ongoing pressures in our region and globally around returns. On the cusp of affirmation of both global compacts, we're in turbulent and pivotal times, globally, regionally, and domestically. Turning now specifically to the role of civil society. Over the last 10 years, a fast-growing and diverse array of civil society actors, including increasing numbers of leaders with lived and living refugee experience, have worked across disciplines and borders to advance the rights of refugees in our region through joint advocacy, mutual capacity strengthening, information share and outreach under the auspices of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network, APRIN, which now comprises over 350 members, mostly organisations across 28 countries, including asylum producing and resettlement contexts within the span of New Zealand, Japan and Iran. My perspectives are informed by nearly a decade of membership of APRIN, for which I'm currently the Global Compact on Refugees Focal Point and Regional Protection Working Group Chair. Our GCM Focal Point, Carolina Gotardo, was here earlier, I think she may have needed to leave, and our former Regional Protection Working Group Chair, Brian Barber, um, is here today, along with a number of other new and long-term APRIN members and supporters. I'll touch briefly on APRIN's origins, mention some of our global, domestic and regional initiatives and finish with brief observations about the questions which I posed at the start. APRIN was conceived by a few internationally engaged advocates from Asia who realised that outside of some country colleagues and the few they met in Geneva, they didn't know who was working on issues related to refugee protection across our region. They reached out and the 110 participants in the first Asia-Pacific consultation on refugee rights refugee leaders, service providers, human rights defenders, lawyers and academics, reported feeling far less isolated, far more informed and resourced, and resolved to establish a network. Sub-regional and thematic working groups were formed, national coalitions have been strengthened and developed across many countries in the region, training has been rolled out, joint advocacy has provided a measure of security cover for some members at risk, stimulated a regional sensibility amongst us and amplified our recommendations in more high-level dialogues, progressively extending our sphere of influence. So one of our key roles is our commitment and support to each other. We have a vision for regional protection of five years standing, which we developed through widespread consultation because within a region which hosted the largest number of forcibly displaced persons in the world at the time, there was no coherent regional vision for their protection. States were actively engaged in dialogue and cooperation on border movements, primarily through, through the Bali process, but this was focused on combating people smuggling and trafficking with limited attention to protection. Our vision encompasses displaced pe persons broadly, including IDPs. It underscores the importance of their participation and leadership and identifies collaborative multi-actor engagement with respect for differentiated roles and responsibilities as key to its attainment. So we were delighted when the New York Declaration espoused some similar language, concepts and commitments. And drawing on wide-ranging members' expertise, we've engaged intensively with the processes to develop both compacts, making five detailed written submissions for the Global Compact on Refugees, for which Tristan Harley, now with the Quarter Centre, was lead drafter, 
contributing to global civil society coalition statements, convening deliberative off-the-record roundtables with states and other actors to stimulate analysis on complementarity between the compacts in both New York and Geneva, and serving on the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework Reference Group and other committees. Throughout, we've had a particular focus on calling for complementarity between the compacts, which was touched on all earlier by Marianne, um, and for enlivening a whole-of-society approach, both of which we feel will be critical to ensuring meaningful impact as we move to implementation in the Asia region. As infrastructure for ensuring complementarity between the processes and, comp um, and compacts wasn't established, we acted as interlocutor at times between some of the key actors. And then back in our region, we've convened multi-actor roundtables, Chatham House, to discuss the appropriate implementation of the compacts in Asia, retaining our focus on complementarity and the whole of society approach. Themes which we've discussed have included the Rohingya situation in confidence, building national asylum systems, livelihoods, legal access to labour markets, durable solutions and alternatives to detention. Current and former refugees, current and former high-level government and ASEAN officials, myriad UN bodies, the World Bank, service providers, donors, think tanks and academics have all participated in these discussions. And alongside, APRON members have led major initiatives, such as the highly impactful gender audit of the Global Compact on Refugees, led by UNSW's Forced Migration Research Network. I think Linda and Eileen spoke of that here last year. The work of the High Commissioner on Refugees Global Youth Advisory Council, the multi-actor cross-cutting work of the Child Rights Initiative, and the convening of the first Global Refugee Summit in Geneva and Regional Refugee Summit in Asia, with leadership from the Australian National Committee on Refugee Women and Refugee Council of Australia. Since we drafted our vision for regional protection, there have been a range of positive developments in our region, including the Bali Declaration of 2016, with clearer protection language and provisions, the consultative mechanism and task force on planning and preparedness that Travis mentioned, the emergence of the ADFM itself and its considerable influence and crossover in our membership, the increased recognition by ASEAN that the displacement of Rohingya is a regional crisis that needs regional solutions, and we'll shortly be hosting a visit by ASEAN Intergovernmental Commissioner for Human Rights um, to Bangladesh to meet with refugees, UNHCR and others. The engagement of numerous governments in developing national asylum systems and screening mechanisms with expert input from APRON members. And there's a host of corresponding opportunities. So returning very briefly to the three questions, I believe these international dialogues can promote better cooperation and accountability for protecting the world's displaced. Yes, the compacts are non-binding, although technically, and I'm not a lawyer, they reference some law which is. Yes, they may not be fully subscribed, and yes, invariably there are compromises in the texts. But they contain some very important elements. They are aspirational, gender responsive, child and youth sensitive, and clear about the importance of meaningful participation and leadership. And importantly, the dialogues have not only delivered texts, but an array of additional insights into the positions and priorities of states and other actors through the many words spoken and written throughout. Diverse actors have invested heavily in the processes, consulted widely and deliberated deeply. And I think all of us who have engaged have probably forged new relationships. Of course, a lot depends on what happens next. The value of global agreements and dialogues are best measured by the impact that they have upon people's lives. And that takes time and it takes baseline studies and indicators and resources and collaborative multi-actor engagement. Binding international laws do not of themselves deliver protection. 
protection and better cooperation and accountability to this end will come about because multiple diverse actors want this and work towards this. So building constituencies and nurturing champions of change within um, institutions will be key. I think the prospects for protecting displaced people in the Asia-Pacific region are high. Asian states have engaged in both the GCM and GCR processes, particularly the former. But I think the real momentum will come from discerning the connections between what is already um, evolving that is regionally and nationally led, knitting together the relevant provisions of numerous multilateral mechanisms and connecting them with the initiatives already being taken in country contexts, supporting ASEAN and Bali process to work on interoperability, supporting fledgling and more developed refugee law, livelihood, alternatives to detention, and access to education initiatives with expert advice, relationship building, and showcasing of positive practices. Finally, to Australia's role. I think Australia's capacity to exercise leadership in terms of protection in our region is commensurate with the credibility and integrity of our policies and behaviours. Australia is, quietly, doing some very good things. And there are plenty of compassionate, intelligent people working within our broken systems to do what they can. Maintaining those links with people is very important. And um, I and a couple of others were recently in conversation with a senior um, official in government who spoke of the importance of investing right now in a relationship ballast because things are so challenging in terms of our different positions. There's a lot of potential at the moment. There's also a great deal at stake. I think it's a time for leaning in and listening carefully, not walking away and closing doors as Australia's just done with the GCM. But for those who do walk away for the kinds of reasons that Australia has walked away from the GCM, most appropriate I think now would be to sit quiet for a while rather than decrying others' cooperative or collaborative efforts from the sidelines. After all, most of the world has chosen to onboard. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tamara. Uh, next, we will have uh, Professor Pamela Matthews, and her topic is responsibility sharing and the Asia-Pacific. Professor Matthews is a research professor at the Griffith Law School, where she served as dean from June 2014 to June 2018. Uh, she's held a chair at the Herbert and Valma Frelick Foundation at the Australian National University. She was a visiting professor and an interim director of the Refugee Program in Asylum Law at the University of Michigan Law School. She's also taught at the ANU College of Law and the Melbourne Law School and is at present uh, and is a past um, editor-in-chief of the Australian Yearbook of International Law. Her most recent book, co-authored with, Trist with Tristan Harley, is Refugees, Regionalism and Responsibility. Please come to the podium. Thank you. Thanks very much, and I'd just like to thank the Caldor Centre for the kind invitation and, and for the hospitality last night, uh, Renata, and uh, just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, I am a little bit jet-lagged because I just flew in at 6.15 yesterday morning, so I'm just trying to stay alert. I'm going to talk about uh, negotiating for responsibility sharing in our region, and I'll take a look at the past, 
I'll consider where we are now with the Global Compact and think about future possible action, particularly by Australia. As everyone in this room, I'm sure, is very well aware, the two key international instruments for refugee protection, the 51 Convention and the 67 Protocol, have not attracted a high rate of ratifications in the Middle East or the Asia-Pacific. As a consequence, asylum seekers on boats headed for Australian shores may justifiably claim that it's near impossible to secure protection worthy of the name en route. Australia has responded by acting as though it too is not bound by the Convention, or at least to circumvent the Convention's obligations, relying on the absence in the Convention of a right of entry to a particular state. And it's established offshore processing centres and negotiated so-called resettlement arrangements with some of the countries in the region, PNG, Nauru and Cambodia, and it's engaged in push and towbacks of boats. Far from sharing responsibility, Australia has engaged in responsibility shifting. Pushing back boats is not new to our region. Decades ago, when Southeast Asian countries of first asylum pushed back boats of Vietnamese asylum seekers, this was a bargaining chip for resettlement places and it led to a responsibility sharing arrangement known as the Comprehensive Plan of Action for Indochinese Refugees or CPA. Um, and there are many people in this room, including Erica Feller, who've had a lot to do with the CPA. I think we can say it was a qualified success, uh, to quote Richard Toll, resulting in durable solutions for hundreds and thousands of refugees. But it didn't leave a strong legacy of protection in the region. While Southeast Asian countries have generally tolerated the presence of refugees, they often don't uh, confer rights such as the right to work. So Sarah Davies has argued that the CPA's legacy was to legitimise uh, rejection of international refugee law in the region, while Cortland Robinson described the CPA as sharing the burden and passing the buck. Given the prevalence of free riding within the international system for the protection of refugees, that is the reliance on others to provide the public good of refugee protection, passing the buck might sometimes seem a rational, though harmful and unilateral response. In the lead up to the negotiations for the CPA, many of the countries of first asylum argued with some justification that they were overwhelmed and needed others to share the load. Now, Australia, of course, cannot rely on this argument. Nevertheless, it's sought to displace its obligations concerning spontaneous maritime arrivals in order to maintain the appearance of full control over its borders. And as we all know, this has caused enormous harm to refugees and asylum seekers, as well as distorting uh, relationships with neighbouring countries. The Global Compact on Refugees is an attempt to jettison this kind of unilateralism precisely because of the harmful ripple effect that unilateralism has. And its main aim, as we heard from Guy this morning, is to galvanise responsibility sharing for refugees. Southeast Asian countries have participated in the negotiations both for the Global Compact on Refugees and prior to that the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants or for Refugees and Migrants. And like most other states, they appear to have endorsed the New York Declaration, including its reaffirmation of the right to seek asylum and the principle of non-refoulement, 
uh, and the commitment to responsibility sharing. And I think that's uh, an important fact that can be leveraged uh, by civil society. On the other hand, of course, the New York Declaration is a consensus resolution. And these uh, consensus resolutions often paper over disagreement in order to determine whether the consensus vote was a mere procedural consensus or true substantive consensus, we need to look at states' explanations of their votes. Uh, I think when you look at the explanations of the votes, for the most part you get a sense of um, the, the world really positively endorsing the New York Declaration. It is a, a true consensus, but there are some odd moments. So Malaysia's explanation uh, you know, talked about the lingering problem of needing to resettle refugees on its territory, which really seemed to adhere to the, the legacy of the CPA and the idea that they're only a transit uh, country. By contrast, the global compact for refugees, as Tamara's just mentioned, was effectively put to the vote just recently. The final draft of the text is in the annual report of the High Commissioner for Refugees, which is the subject of the UNHCR omnibus resolution each year. And for the first time ever, and that's not necessarily something to be celebrated really, um, it was put to a vote in the third committee of the General Assembly, the step prior to going to the General Assembly. One state, the United States of America, voted no. There were three abstentions and 176 states voted in favour of the resolution. 13 states did not cast a vote, including some Asian states. So I think Nauru, for example, did not cast a vote. But the vast majority of Asian states cast a positive vote. So that indicates very, very strong support for the global compact overall and in our region, and I think that's significant, although, of course, we'll have to wait uh, and see what happens in the General Assembly around about December 17 to know the final result. Well, what were states voting for? What is the approach of the global compact uh, on refugees to the important question of responsibility sharing? To the disappointment of some, the compact does not set out a clear, transparent mechanism for the allocation of responsibility for refugees among states. Rather, as Guy was saying this morning, it establishes arrangements by which voluntary pledges may be made in situations of large or protracted uh, movements. Although in the case of protracted, of course, it's not a movement really, it's a situation. There's been a movement and it's become very uh, prolonged. These arrangements include four-year global refugee forums and in the case of particular crises, support platforms and solidarity conferences. The compact also contains the seeds of a firmer scheme for responsibility sharing with indicators for progress against the compact's objectives to be developed ahead of the first global refugee forum in 2019 alongside a mapping exercise quantifying the impact of hosting refugees, assessing gaps and promoting more equitable responsibility sharing. And I think civil society and academia really have an opportunity there to, to leverage this hook in the global compact to improve on it and uh, try and make suggestions as to a firmer regime for responsibility sharing. Even in their current form, I think the compact's arrangement arrangements could help to shape the ways in which our region responds to refugees. There will be, I don't, I don't think that you can just say really doesn't do much because it's all voluntary and doesn't um, 
significantly change what uh, currently uh, happens. There will be a universal and heightened focus on states' behaviour regarding refugees through the four-year global refugee forums, and I think that adds significantly to what we have uh, currently. Um, as you'd know, 102 states meet as the executive committee of the High Commissioner's program. Uh, if faced with a mass influx or a protracted situation, states in our region could request that UNHCR establish a support platform, and one would hope that as a result of the Global Refugee Forums, there would already be pledged support that would enable quick mobilisation of that platform. States could then work with UNHCR and others to develop a comprehensive plan setting out requirements for support from the international community and there might be a solidarity conference to follow. That process would be infinitely preferable to the pushbacks occurring prior to the adoption of the CPA and again with the Rohingya in 2015. So I think it does offer something significant and useful. Another possible cause for optimism is that three ingredients which I think are integral to the negotiations for the New York Declaration and the Global Compact are mirrored in the region and that they could potentially galvanise better protection in the region. So I think three ingredients that have been central to these negotiations are, first of all, a crisis. You know, crises often cause a change in uh, behaviour. Uh, and at the international level, it, it was the Syrian refugee crisis and perhaps more particularly its spillover into the so-called European mi migrant crisis of 2015. Second, an accepted international legal framework, the 51 Convention, Protocol, Customary International Law and so on. And third, and Guy referred to this a bit earlier, the reframing of the arrival of refugees and migrants as an opportunity for development, not just a development challenge. This last element, the development framework, is most visible in the other compact, the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, but it's also present in the Global Compact on Refugees. For example, the Global Compact on Refugees stipulates that states and development actors are to work to provide additional development resources, either through grants or highly concessional loans, and the private sector may be involved in investment, job creation, development of innovative technology, including renewable energy and greater access to financial products. It also says that humanitarian and development actors need to work together, that development programs and, where possible, humanitarian assistance should benefit both refugees and host communities, and that humanitarian assistance should be developed through local and national providers rather than parallel systems, one for refugees and, and one for locals. These three elements that drove negotiations for the New York Declaration manifest in particular ways in Southeast Asia. Firstly, as Travers has already talked about, we've witnessed an ongoing crisis, the Rohingya refugee crisis in our region. And in particular, he referred to the Andaman Sea uh, crisis where we had five, over 5,000 Rohingya asylum seekers and Bangladeshi migrants marooned at sea when countries in the region would not allow them to disembark. This crisis provoked reflection and assisted in the more explicit acceptance of refugee protection as a legal obligation, and Travis talked about the, the, the process around that. 
Um, there are already signs of an emerging regional legal framework within the region, and we could go back to the Bangkok principles. Um, we could talk about the ASEAN Declaration on uh, Human Rights. Uh, but I think it's probably fair to say that the 2016 Bali Declaration is one of the strongest statements concerning refugee protection made by countries in the region. It actually uses words like refugee and protection, and that's actually really quite significant, I think, quite a, a change in language. Um, walking the talk, of course, is a different matter. Um, while and while talk of a crisis can promote paradigmatic change, it can also promote knee-jerk reactions that seek to deflect and contain a crisis. And I think that's quite literal uh, when we're talking about refugee flows. And we've witnessed that with European responses to the European migrant crisis with the EU-Turkey uh, agreement that's been talked about earlier today. Um, so in 2017, when writing about the Rohingya crisis and response, Madeleine Gleeson concluded that most Southeast Asian states still appeared unwilling to relinquish the legacy of the CPA and their status as a transit uh, countries. And the reality is that there are still many refugees and asylum seekers in the region without lawful status, subjected to detention and other human rights abuses. But as we've been hearing from Travers and Tamara, perhaps it's a case of watch this space, that maybe gradually, slowly, slowly, there will be a bit more walking the talk and not just the po very positive changes in language. I think the third ingredient, uh, reframing of refugees and migrants as helpful for development might be a critical tool to transform the fine words of the Bali Declaration and indeed the Global Compact into action in our region. Some of the countries in the region, such as Thailand and Malaysia, have excess access excess labour demand and are reliant on migrant labour. And this accounts for UNHCR's ability to initiate a pilot uh, for 300 Rohingya refugees in Malaysia to work on plantations and in manufacturing. An important caveat is that there need to be adequate protections both against refoulement and of labour rights. Otherwise, as Saltzman has observed, there's a risk that refugees simply become precarious labour migrants. He says that uh, while, quote, market-oriented thinking may be an attempt to make the most out of a bad situation, it also panders to Southeast Asian states' interests in a low-wage workforce that can help them remain competitive in garment, rubber and palm oil industries. The other compact, the global compact, uh, for migration, which underlines labour protection, may be very important here. But I, I think we need to listen to critics like Saltzman and pay close attention when trying to marry up national interest with uh, those of refugees, because that's how we get things done in international relations, and ensure that market logic doesn't overwhelm protection needs and human development. Uh, the adoption of development is the lodestar when dealing with migration and refugee issues, and that certainly, I think you do see that in both the global compacts, um, is a very positive development in many ways, but it's not without risk. So people like Sandhya Pahuja, for example, has warned that the creation of the developmental nation state after the wave of decolonisation in the 60s and 70s has allowed continuing Western intervention in developing states often with disastrous consequences. 
And it, I think it's quite possible that similar patterns of domination could play out in South-South relations, with less wealthy southern states providing a cheap source of labour, fueling the economy of um, more wealthy states in the region. I think the other caveat is that Australia, as one of the most prosperous nations in the region, needs to demonstrate that the idea that refugees can contribute as productive members of society or agents of development is not just relevant to developing countries. Otherwise, there's a risk that the idea may be viewed as a rather thin disguise for containment of refugees within the developing world. Australia should be expanding its resettlement programs and complementary uh, pathways for protection in line with the Global Compact and seeking to use these durable solutions strategically in a way that promotes better protection in countries in the region. If we think about it, if Australia had resettled some of the Rohingya back in 2015, instead of offering the response, nope, 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 that Tamara referred to, Australia would surely have been in a stronger position to ask that host countries offer legal status to refugees on their territory. And I don't think it's too late to pursue that approach now. Instead of funding detention centres, for example, Australia could use the Global Compact as a springboard to ask whether countries in our region would be open to Australian funding that enables them to accommodate refugees and assist locals by bolstering national capacity on infrastructure and so on where refugees are hosted. We could also fund skills and education programs or offer technical assistance and funding for improvement of labour protections, as Jay Song has argued in a recent Lowy Institute publication. I think the funding of protection in the region and enabling more lawful pathways is an entirely sensible strategy for Australia. But for us to expect countries in the region to accept spontaneous asylum seekers, we need not to pay others to do so, but to do so ourselves. We need to be leading from the front. To demonstrate good faith, Australia must end offshore processing, bringing refugees and asylum seekers to Australia if there's nowhere else that they can receive meaningful protection, and it must stop pushbacks and towbacks. We can hardly argue against pushbacks when we use them ourselves. Responsibility sharing encompasses both financing and hosting of refugees, and it's right that we should accept as refugees those who come by boat in light of our greater capacity to do so as compared with many countries in our region. For too long, Australia has sought to shift responsibility rather than fairly share it, and it's high time for change. Thank you.